You're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Here on Theory and Practice, we interview people who are looking for big solutions and people who are creating powerful tools. We find the scientists asking the most interesting questions in the life sciences and the researchers in computer science who are building the machines to answer them. So stay with us as we explore questions and solutions on Theory and Practice. So, Anthony, I got a chance to talk with Jessica Mega, who's the chief medical officer at Verily. We had a, a wide-ranging conversation and talked about a couple different things, but one of the themes that kept hitting me was this difference in timescales between cool stuff in tech that we want to bring to medicine and the rigor and impact that medicine has on people's lives that we want to kind of connect with tech. And this conflict is old and it's cultural and there's all kinds of friction between these two worlds. It came up in the interview as challenges to overcome, uh, which is, I think is a really positive spin to put on this, but I expect that we'll probably be revisiting this theme throughout this show. I totally agree, and I'm really excited to hear what Jess had to say on this specific topic. You know, in some ways, Jess is kind of a perfect example of this as someone who maybe trained in one of the most kind of conservative, evidence-based branches of medicine. Cardiology, um, one of the things that's great about it is it has a very strong tradition of running clinical trials and trying to actually have evidence-based medicine. The flip side of that is that it's very intellectually conservative. And even things like, is it okay to take twice the dose every 24 hours of a medication or half the dose every 12 hours? People will be skeptical that only one was used in a trial and so the, the other is therefore totally unacceptable. So now that she's in the world of Silicon Valley and software engineering, and data science, her perspective on that I think will be really amazing. So let's listen to that conversation. The first question I asked Jessica was about her career path to how she got to where she is now. For me, it was always really important to think about the right solutions to help patients. And I became a cardiologist I came from a family of physicians. My dad's a surgeon. My mom's a psychiatrist. And when I was going through, I found cardiology was a nice blend of, of both of those and became quite interested not only in the way we care for patients today, but what could we do going forward? Could there be new therapies? Could we understand more about cardiovascular disease? And as you start to get in that area, you realize a lot of data comes along with that and a lot of information and so I was at Harvard Medical School trying to think about ways to combine this information and came across some of the work that Google X was doing at the time in healthcare. So I ultimately made the transition from Harvard Medical School to Google X now about two and a half years ago. So what are the things that we couldn't see before that we now can see because of the technologies that are coming to maturity right now? So one major trend that we're seeing is very small biocompatible electronics. And the reason that matters is that if you can instrument the human body and you can read these signals, then you can start to understand someone not only when they're in the four walls of the hospital or the four walls in a clinic. So I might see a patient one day out of the year, but what happens the 364 days out of the year when they're not seeing me? Uh, I'll give you some really tangible examples. How is someone walking? So if there's a patient that I'm seeing with heart failure, they may come into my office and say, yeah, I had a, a few bad months there. But if I could really understand, wow, something definitely changed two months ago, their walking patterns went from them being able to walk a mile to, a day 
to half a mile, that's a moment in time that we could capture to see did something change with their underlying health. And so having these insights, not only within the hospital or clinic, but outside is going to start to change the way we think about health and disease. But how does the doctor actually digest the information that, that we're recording? Are there any examples where doctors are actually taking continuous measurements from people that is, 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 is ongoing and actually able to kind of act on that clinically? The answer isn't more data, uh, more information to look through, more liability, but it's really how do you surface what's meaningful at that moment. So I think that's going to be the real balance. Right. So there's almost a visualization problem along with a data collection and a data modeling problem. And it seems like all these have to be juggled in some way. That's right. You can break it down into, do we have the right tools to collect the information? Do we have infrastructure where we can actually organize it? And then what actually matters? How do we activate it? How do we visualize it? How do we get it to the right people at the right time? There are signals that we know are medically relevant today. And I can give a personal story. My grandfather had diabetes and we used to watch him prick his finger and he would monitor all of his values and it would go into a paper notebook and then we'd have hordes of paper notebooks and we couldn't make sense of any of that. So a problem we can help solve today is thinking about more seamless ways to help folks with diabetes measure their glucose. And one particular product we're working on is a very small continuous glucose monitor and we're doing that in partnership with Dexcom. On the other hand, we don't want to just think about today's problems, right? Everyone knows someone who either has a medical condition or a health condition where there's still more that can be done. And in those cases, there is a need for this primary research, this idea of taking data and studying people and and partnering with folks so that we really understand what's meaningful. We always have to think about all the things that people are balancing and, and could we actually instrument a tool they're already using every day And then on the other hand, keep our eyes and ears open for new potentially medically relevant signals. That last part is really interesting to me because I don't know how that proceeds in the world that you're from, the world of medicine. How do you think about designing trials or studies or just simply approaching, searching for really new medicine with the new tools that you have available? There's a real beauty in combining medicine and biology with new technology and I feel quite fortunate. I spent a large part of my professional life in the world of clinical trials where we would work with patients who had different heart conditions and try to figure out what are the next best therapies. But the only way we knew if those therapies really worked was designing rigorous, thoughtful clinical trials with this next generation of technologies, whether it's new molecular technologies or digital technologies, we, we want to have that, that same sort of insight. We want to make sure that these new tools actually add value. And I tend to think about these new tools not through the lens of the tool themselves, but what are the problems that we're trying to solve? What do I actually have to do to create a clinical trial and to test out some new algorithm to see if it helps predict people's health better or actually makes people healthier? So if you and I uh, had an idea, we created a new device. We'll call it the SuperDuper device. We need to prove to ourselves, to the medical community, to patients, to healthcare systems, to payers that this actually makes a difference. So what we would do is figure out what's the right population where we think this super duper device is going to make a difference. Why isn't it just everybody? Why can't we select evenly from everyone? It's a great question. We could if we think everyone would benefit from this device. But it may be something that's tailored only to people with 
let's say, heart disease, in which case we would want to test this device in people who actually could benefit from that device. The next step is trying to make sure that your device actually makes a difference. And so in a traditional clinical trial, what you would do is we may take this population and divide them into two groups. And we give one group the device and we give the other group either a placebo or a sham device or some other element that's going on. And then we see what happens over time. And if we were claiming that this device, let's stick with our cardiac example, that this device is going to make people's hearts healthier because they were going to walk more, be more active, we need to prove to ourselves that it actually benefits these patients. And so if our outcome is... Uh, sometimes that can be improved quality of life. Sometimes we run trials and you need to prove that you reduce heart attack, cardiovascular death, and stroke. Those are called hard clinical endpoints. But you need to know what endpoint you're trying to modify and then test it. And it's only at that point that we can say with confidence our device truly makes the difference, that, it, that we can back up the claims that we're making. I can imagine how new technology creates new gadgets that we want to test rigorously in a clinical trial. But I could also imagine that technology also has a role to play in the other aspects that you brought up for forming a clinical trial, which is picking who goes in the clinical trial and then maybe even measuring how well some new gizmo or some new treatment is working. Is there a role for new fancy tech to play in measuring either of those two things? Absolutely. So, so I, I don't want anyone to walk away saying that everything needs to be tested in the same way. Because again, the variety of risk is quite vast. So if you think about technologies, some of them might be a watch that you wear and other ones might be a new surgical robot that, that we may be working with or testing. So again, one, one key thing is that not all devices and not all technology is the same. The, the second one is, could we actually use new tech to make this testing process more streamlined? And that's actually something at Verily we've been incredibly committed to. Could we figure out how to engage with participants and volunteers more easily who want to get involved in forwarding health, new health paradigms? Can we follow people more remotely? Can we access and analyze data quickly? All of these pieces can make the, the testing product much, much more streamlined, and that ends up being much more efficient. And as a machine learning guy, what's kind of popping into my head is, well, maybe I want to cluster patients or I want to classify them. And if I want to do that, I might want to turn a patient into a list of numbers that represent something about their health state. And then I can use that information maybe to say, okay, uh, cluster A gets treatment A at dose A, and cluster B gets you know, some other treatment or placebo. Does that play into how clinical trials are designed today, or is that a little bit, we haven't gotten there yet? The exciting piece right now is to overlay and for people like myself to work with someone like you and say, are people actually clustering in a way that I'm not seeing on the surface? So I use the word a heart rhythm disturbance or someone who has a heart attack. You may start to see other variables that start to cluster. And that's, I think, going to be a great opportunity to go beyond our standard classifications. And the words we use are our standard phenotypes, the way we describe disease today. There's likely, and, and this has been in evolution for years, so it's not, not new. It just goes back to we have new tools to try to cluster people based on different variables. And so I'm incredibly excited about the potential. So is one way to say it that we want to do better phenotyping with the help of big data sets and with the help of machine learning and, I guess, with digital signatures? What would you call it? Would you call it digital phenotyping in a way? That's actually a word that I've 
started to use a lot. It's uh, I used to go very deep and get very technical and what is the phenotyping we're using and what are we measuring molecular signals or digital signals. And it's really just phenotyping broadly. And some of it's digital, some of it's molecular. It's just a lot of signals that we're trying to integrate. And it used to be the buzzword a few years ago was let's look at a lot of big data. I think now people are starting to really value the quality of the data. And so you're starting to hear people talk about deep data and then using ML on top of deep data. What pops into my head there is Netflix movies. The recommendations that I get on Netflix or on just any kind of product recommendations from Amazon where I bought a spoon and they say, maybe you want to buy a fork. (laughs) Are we anywhere near being able to do something like that in medicine? And what would that even look like? So the first thing is we have to make sure that the information is valid so that there are not multiple people logged into my Amazon account. And, you know, you have to first make sure that the signals are actionable and coming from that person. But there are ways where we're starting to understand really simple things. So I'll give you some simple examples. Are you someone who would prefer to learn about your health information or get a reminder about medicine? Would would it benefit if you got a call? Would you prefer to have a text? Would you prefer to get an email? Really basic. We're not talking about biology here. We're just talking about ways that information, your health information is surfaced. Over time, the idea then is to say, how can we proactively start to help people enhance their health? Much like we were talking about earlier, the spoon offering, the fork offering comes up. It may be that, huh, I'm starting to notice that your walking's changed. I'm going to reach out as a healthcare provider and say, has something changed? Did you have pain in your leg? Do you have pain in your hip? Because there may be a moment that physical therapy would, would just do a tremendous amount as opposed to waiting till you need a hip replacement. That makes me think of a couple things. One is that sounds like an adaptive treatment system. It sounds like there's data that's continuously coming in. And the thing that we might have to test rigorously in a clinical trial setting before we give it to doctors is not a static device. It's this algorithm or it's a system that is able to learn from data and might, in fact, change after it's deployed. So how do we test that, right? Because the product that we're putting out there might, in fact, be different, you know, a year after it gets launched once it sees enough people's data in order to make better decisions. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So it goes back to the example, if you see me in the clinic, and let's say you're having a particularly good day and you're able to do, there's a test we do called a six-minute walk, and I might make different medication adjustments based on that. Actually, what would be really interesting is how you walk every single day. And so that needs to be adaptive, right? Right. And that is where the world is moving towards. Now, there's some things that we're going to have enough science where we say this needs to be adaptive, let me look at your walking in aggregate. And then there are other places uh, where, and I'm always, I, I really do want to bring this up, is that there's some places where we're going to be able to automate, it's going to be adaptive. And then there are other places where there's just still going to be more the art of healthcare and the personal connection. So I always want to think about these tools as augmenting the, the care system that we currently have, not supplanting or replacing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So for the six-minute walk example, it seems like there might be a series of, I guess, checkboxes that you go through or a list that you go through when you're watching a person do a test, and then you kind of mentally crunch on that, and then you make a medication adjustment based on that. So in a sense, it seems like what we'd like to do is to take that implicit knowledge that's inside of your head and maybe turn it into a computer program when we can. And there's probably a lot of instances where that's either hard or impossible. Is that kind of an example of when we actually 
know that there's automation that can be done, that should be done and tested? Absolutely. So that's, we are currently at Verily thinking about a number of these places where you want to get sort of more structured or organized or understand inputs in a controlled setting. And then I think there's going to be places where it may be more useful to get a broader sampling where it's not under the direction of just doing a six-minute walk. It, it may be more interesting to really understand the total amount that you walk or bursts. And, and so that's, that's where we're going to have to continue to explore. This has been really fascinating. I learned a ton. So thanks for explaining clinical trials and digital health and how, how this is all going to play together. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? So this has been a ton of fun. And what I would say is we need to continue these kinds of conversations. And just the nature of your questions already got me thinking about new ideas. And so the more we bring these cultures together and the work that you guys are doing, for example, through this podcast, this is where, this is where the difference is going to happen. So thank you for having me on the show today. Jessica Mega, Chief Medical Officer at Verily. Very cool to be able to talk with her. That's so cool that you got to have that conversation. Yeah, it was a real treat. I'd love to switch gears and hear from you a little bit more, Anthony. You and I both attend this meetup in Boston called Hammer and Nail, where everyone in the group brings an idea, a solution, and a problem. Do you have a cool idea that you want to chat about? Yeah, actually, today I have a nail that's been on my mind a lot, which is clinical trials and the role of machine learning in designing them. So one of the things that I think about a lot as a cardiologist is the fact that cardiovascular trials cost a huge amount of money and take a long amount of time to run. Could you give a sense of like how much money and how much time? Yeah, so somewhere between $500 million and a billion dollars. It's a lot of money. <laughs> it is, it is. Uh, and actually, in fact, I will tell you that not only is a lot of money, but more than 90% of it is wasted. If you think about, let's say, a typical heart attack trial, you'll often run it for four or five years, and the event rate which is to say the number of people that have a heart attack in the control arm, forget about the drug arm, is often 5-10%. So what that means is that in practice, much like advertising, 90% of it is wasted. You just don't know which 90% going mm. into the trial. One of the things that I think is a really interesting and compelling idea um, that a lot of people are starting to think about is can we use a mixture of genomic data and clinical data to increase the event rate, the number of people that have a heart attack? So this and would be like selecting for patients that are more likely to have a heart attack? Exactly. So imagine for a second that, you know, you selected people in the trial instead of very coarse features like have they had a previous heart attack or what's their ejection fraction or I'm going to exclude them because they have poor kidney function. Instead, I have some kind of algorithm based on genomic and clinical data. What's really interesting is that the cost savings are proportional to the relative risk, not the absolute. So concretely, if you have a clinical trial where you go from 10% event rate to 20% event rate, then you cut the cost of the trial in half. Got it. Not by 10%. Exactly. Now, you know, for example, conversely, a trial where you have an 80% event rate and you go to 90%, then it's much less of a lift, even though it's 10% both ways. So what it means is that there's the biggest gains to be had in the places we're doing the worst, which is a nice situation to be in because yeah. there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. And, you know, moreover, let's say, again, going back to a typical cardiology trial, if instead of taking the event rate from 10% to 20%, if you could take it from 10% to 50%, I think it's fair to say that it would be a new era in drug development. Wouldn't it also be a new era in cardiology? 
you'd be finding yes. people much, much more likely to have a heart attack. That's exactly right. And in fact, I think that's one of the biggest opportunities is can we predict terrible outcomes for preventable diseases? So for example, in something like a heart attack, if we can prevent who's going to have a heart attack, then we'd be able to give them statins and prevent it. Sorry, you mean predict? Predict, yeah. Okay. Sorry, but then you can give them statins and that lowers the risk greatly of having a heart attack. And to put in perspective how bad we are at deciding who gets a statin, one of the numbers that epidemiologists often use to estimate the efficacy of a drug is something called the number needed to treat, which is how many people do I need to give a drug to in order to prevent one bad thing. For statins, it's something like 70 people, right? Which means that I give 70 people a statin and one of them has a heart attack. Preventive. And it should be one. <laughs> Ideally. And so any Ideally. number below 70, lowering that is just a good thing. Yep. yep. Okay. So going back to clinical trials, I think this is a really interesting and exciting idea. And one of the reasons why I think it's also especially exciting is that it's in some ways an easier problem than a lot of people have previously tried to solve when it comes to machine learning and clinical trials. There are a lot of people who would like to predict who will respond to a drug. Mm -hmm. But that is often difficult because the first time you're running a trial, you don't have a training data set to use to right. build your classifier. Right. In what I'm talking about here, it's more about just predicting who's going to have a heart attack, right. where we have a lot of data sets mm -hmm. um, that we can use to do it. And that includes like Framingham and UK Biobank and things like that? Exactly. Mm -hmm. What's also really interesting is that two things have changed that make this much more appealing than in, in the past. So the first is we've gotten much better at using genetics to predict risk. So a disease like heart attacks is not just one gene, but it's rather the additive effect of many, many genes. And a new idea uh, developed by one of my colleagues, uh, Sate Catharason and, and others, is the idea of a polygenic risk score, where I'm kind of regressing the genome against um, something like heart attacks. Mm -hmm. And even though my confidence, my beta on any one variant is often not that great, um, in aggregate, they end up being a pretty good predictor. So this is kind of like a kitchen sink approach where you kind of throw all the information you have that could possibly have bearing on the outcome, and your goal is really just to predict whether or not the outcome will occur. Exactly, exactly. And how much thought is there given to figuring out, kind of backing out the whys and the wherefores, like which genes are actually responsible for Oh, for sure. Heart attack? And I would say that that, over the last decade, has been a big part of what statistical genetics has been all about, is gaining very, very high confidence that a specific gene is involved in the disease. Mm -hmm. That has been an incredibly successful activity, and it, you know they're often called genome-wide association studies or GWASs. Undoubtedly, that will continue. But this idea of, instead of focusing on discovering a small number of variants with very high confidence... Instead, focusing on the idea of prediction as a goal in and of itself is maybe the new angle on this yeah. problem. So, and one of the things that's great about genetics is you're born with your genome. So rather than waiting hmm. until midlife when you get, you know, a bunch of cheeseburgers and have high cholesterol <laughs> and a heart attack, uh, from an early age, you can predict who will be at highest risk. I see. So that's very cool. Then, you know, a second thing that's going on that you know far better than me about is all of the breakthroughs in machine learning, especially when it comes to imaging data. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the world of cardiology, we're very lucky to have lots of very powerful image-based signals, whether they be ECGs or coronary artery calcium CTs, um, lots of other imaging modalities. And so, again, when you think about sort of being able to build risk scores that are, you know, based on both genomic and phenotypic data, there are all sorts of reasons that we could do much, much better than we ever have in the past. Mm -hmm. 
So I think you know clinical trials is a great early application. As you say, if successful there, there's lots of reasons why it should be part of the more general standard of care in, uh, in cardiology and treating cardiovascular patients. That's really interesting. What, what are some other signal sources that you see that can be folded into models like this? What I'm kind of seeing is this analogy to these kind of large-scale linear logistic regression models for like predicting who's going to click on an ad, and really everything gets thrown into those models. And it's often the case in an industrial setting where you just throw every scrap of signal that you possibly can think of into the model in order to get the highest prediction score. So like, where are the kind of buckets that you're scrounging for signal for that aren't just in the genome? Great, great question. And in fact, I love the analogy between advertising technologies and precision medicine. Um, I think there's actually a lot of similarities. Let's begin with the obvious ones. You know, genetics, as I mentioned. Then there's everything that you can collect in a hospital setting. You know, imaging data, ECGs, um, what medicines you take. Uh, like the medical record. Exactly. Yeah. The medical record, what your doctor has written about you right. in clinical notes, all of these things. Very clear that those are all quite important. Then there's a really interesting set of things that are not yet medical, but could be someday. Things like, you know, uh, wearables with heart monitors and things right. like that, which are new data streams we haven't mm-hmm. seen before. And then you get into a really interesting set of variables that medicine is not yet using, but you wonder if maybe we should. And actually, this is where you get into the connections with advertising technologies. Knowing your grocery bill might actually be a great biomarker oh, interesting. for your risk of having heart disease. So maybe the credit cards should partner yeah. up with the insurers <laughs> and both would benefit. I think it's a fascinating question. Interesting. And interesting. You know, I think it's something that has maybe not been looked at quite yeah. enough. But, you know, from things like traditional consumer data, which is probably quite indicative of a lot of things about your lifestyle, how you eat, how much you exercise, et cetera, you know, and your environmental variables, which medicine has always appreciated to be important. You know, we have not yet begun to try to mine that. Right. But it could be very important. Yeah. I mean, that absolutely makes uh, a ton of sense to me. I mean, even something as simple as like the names of the Wi-Fi networks that you connect to, like if they're the word gym right. in those Wi-Fi networks, like yes. with any regularity, perhaps you can assume that you're actually getting some exercise or at least <laughs> passing by a gym on your way to work or the donut <laughs> shop or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's this. I think this is Jess Mega's term, or I don't know where it's been floating around, but the idea of digital exhaust. Yeah. The idea that you know we, we're shedding an incredible amount of information in our online lives and they're not being used nearly enough to promote our own health yeah. at this point. That's right. Uh, and I think that, that, that there's a lot of excellent opportunities there. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting to hear you kind of express that vision because it makes a ton of sense to me. Excellent. Well, it's been great talking to you today. I think this wraps up this episode of Theory and Practice. I'm Alex Wolchko. And I'm Anthony Filipakis. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent official policy or the position of GV, Google, or any of their respective affiliates, including Alphabet. The hosts' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither GV nor Google nor any of their respective affiliates warrant their completeness or accuracy, and they should not be relied upon as such. Got a question or a comment? Email us at theoryandpractice.com at gv.com.